Welcome to BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast, hosted by the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. Learn more about the trends disrupting healthcare and how companies can adapt and evolve in an ever-changing business landscape. We are going to spice it up. That's what's going to happen. So nothing better than spicing up than, um, well, other than seasoning. Um, we're going to talk about adjusting to disruption, the new normal in healthcare. Welcome to our next topic on this disruption um, in healthcare. I'm Patrick Pilch, again, national healthcare leader for BDO and the BDO um, uh, Center for Healthcare Excellence with uh, Stephen Schill and David Friend. Uh, we talked about, on the previous panel, we talked a lot about how disruption is creating some opportunity for investors. Um, there's also some risks and challenges with anything, right? So, but now we want to shift gears to focus on what's impacting patient communities um, and the, the healthcare industry at large. We have an incredible group of innovators to discuss their experience and outlook. And I am overwhelmed by their, their intelligence. And I'm looking forward to a great, great conversation. Um, we're not doing Shark Tank, but we could. Um, and they would all win. That's the thing. Everyone, everyone write checks for them. So firstly, to my left, Lisa Alderson, who is the co-founder and CEO of uh, Genome, Genome Medical, a digital health company bringing genetics to everyday life. Lisa has 20 years of experience building early stage companies. Uh, with a focus on technology, consumer and life sciences businesses. Uh, she's held C-suite positions within Invitae, Invitae, I'm doing my Latin right here now, um, and Crossloop Inc. She was part of the startup team at Genomic Health Inc. and a former member, a former manager of strategic planning at the Walt Disney Company. Lisa is also a board member and advisor with a track of creating funding and managing high growth ventures. So everyone has to welcome Lisa. Next, we have Lee Jones. Lee is the CEO of Rebiotics uh, Inc. Lee is a, and she's a co also the founder, co-founder of the uh, of the company. She's an experienced medical technology executive and a serial entrepreneur, with deep experience in the medical device in, devices industry and in managing and advising academic scientists. There's some in the room here on commercialization efforts, so it'd be good cross pollination certainly. Lee, uh, Rebiotics is uh, marks her first foray into biotechnology. Um, she's leading a fast-paced effort to develop a new way of treating disease through microbiota restoration therapy. So welcome, Lee. Um, Martin Kelly, uh, founder and CEO of HealthXL, the leading platform for health technology collaboration. Prior to HealthXL, Martin was a partner at IBM's uh, Venture Capital Group and led the development of their global entrepreneur program, including the worldwide rollout to over 20 countries. Martin has worked in the tech industry since the early 1990s in a variety of technical project management uh, and business development roles. Uh, he was voted corporate, global corporate venturing personality of the year in 2012. So that's five years ago, Martin. So you have to like pick it up for this time. <laughs> or six years ago. We need a big personality here from Martin. I'm counting on you. My wife is surprised that I had a personality. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, we're delighted to have Dr. William Payne. Uh, Dr. Payne is the co-founder and CEO of MyOwnDoctor.com. It's a telemedicine platform that provides 
uh, that helps providers virtualize care and educate their patients and caregivers. Dr. Payne is an orthopedic surgeon, healthcare executive and entrepreneur. He is very active in his community and is an, an involved board member for several nonprofits and foundations. Thank you all for joining us today. You have such great compelling backgrounds and very diverse backgrounds, so I'm very excited about this conversation. So let's get started. So we have a number of questions, and what we want to do is sort of allow you to have space to talk about your vision, and what, 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 almost like your pitch, if you will, in terms of what you're doing and how you got there. So all of you have something in common. Uh, your companies have been founded at least in part to drive value for a new kind of healthcare consumer. So how do you understand today's consumer's needs, and again, um, it's changeable obviously, and desires to create options that in turn create value for them? So, Lisa. Sure, so first, by brief background, Genomedical is a digital health company focused on genomics. So uh, ge genetic testing and uh, genomics more broadly is technology that's just growing exponentially. But what hasn't grown are the number of experts in the field as specialists. So there are just 2,000 geneticists in the United States and about 4,000 genetic counselors. So as we march towards this new era of precision medicine with genomics as sort of an underlying component of that, we see this as a real last mile access. We need to bridge between the medicine, the science, and the technology that is now abundantly available and the practice of medicine. And so how do we translate these great new tools and technology into everyday healthcare? Uh, and with that, I see a real trend around consumer empowerment and interest and enablement, uh, witnessed by the rapid growth in consumer genetics and consumer genomics, uh, but also by the incredible acceleration in clinical utility around genetic testing and uh, more broadly than that, genomic technologies. And so uh, Genome Medical is looking at how do we innovate on service delivery? How do we help solve what we call as a last mile access program, a problem where we really help enable both a individual as well as a medical practitioner to bring genetics into care delivery? And I, I think you know, there's a couple of trends that are coming together. One, uh, an improvement to drive towards accelerated and improved patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. And second, a drive to lower the cost of healthcare delivery. Genomics actually offers the promise of both together. And often, you don't see those. Those can often be in, in um, opposition to each other. And so, I, you know, I think we're seeing the industry move much and more, much more towards value-based care, and how do we really measure based on improvement in outcomes? Uh, and I'm excited to be a participant in that, and would really love to have Genome Medical be a catalyst that helps uh, shepherd in that era of genomic medicine, but in a really medically responsible way, and yet a more efficient and scalable way than has been done before. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm Lee Jones, and I'm the president, founder, and CEO of Rebiotics. Just a brief background on Rebiotics and how I got involved with this is Rebiotics, we're developing new drug therapies that are based on live organisms, and those organisms are actually the active uh, drug product. So we uh, take uh, microbes from healthy humans, and we, we package them and process them, and then deliver them to sick people with the idea that we can repopulate their uh, gut microbiome and help that patient become uh, reverse the colonization so they, they uh, become their own uh, best chance against fighting infections. I got involved in this because 
as I started looking, transitioning from being a med device executive into the biology sphere, I really believed that biology was kind of the next wave of medicine. And, really, and I looked at the microbiome and got very excited about it. As we, and my imagination ran wild, and I started thinking about all the things that we could do if we could have the person's own body help them uh, be disease resistant. And given the background that antibiotics are becoming less useful with disease resistance, uh, I started thinking about all the ways that we could possibly change the way medicine is practiced. So we started out uh, to, be, to bring a drug to market. We are currently the, the farthest along in any microbiome company today anywhere and uh, are pretty excited to be close to commercial launch of our first product. So for me, I, I agree with Lisa, looking ahead, uh, when I started Rebiotics, I started thinking about where the insurance industry, healthcare, and everything was going to be emerging sometime in the future. In my medical device days, you know, you added features and you charged more money, and you didn't really have to provide a lot of medical evidence that things were going to work. That, to me, has completely changed. And actually, I, I appreciate the fact that now as you're doing clinical work, you have to provide a benefit, and you get value uh, based on that benefit. As, as I was looking at that intersection between insurance and the patient, it, it became pretty obvious that you know, the, the healthcare system is driving what used to be a physician's work down into the nursing area and the nurses down lower level into the telehealth area. So we had to look as a product manufacturer how we were going to fit in with that over time. Uh, it was a little bit maybe over-optimistic in how fast that would move, so when I designed my product, <laughs> I designed it for the simplest possible use, for the lowest possible uh, uh, skill set, and, uh, and saving money in the system. So I think we might be a little ahead of the game, but I think it's really important to recognize those trends and as, as a company, try to project forward so that when our product is available, we're hitting where that marketplace is versus you know, being way out of sync. What is the delivery vehicle for the product, though? Is it a pill? So we, we have two different ways. We have a, a liquid suspension that we deliver via Enema, and, which is our first product. And we picked that specifically because we have multiple doctor customers. Some do procedures, some don't. This gave them an opportunity to treat their patients without having any special equipment. So, and also looked at the reimbursements of the, the physician. You know, my medical device days, a physician can. Uh, make some money on the work that they're doing and it works for their patient, that's the best of all situations. So the second product we're coming out with is a oral formulation that's room temperature that the patient can themselves. It's very helpful. It's great. Mark? Yeah, good morning. I'm Martin Kelly. I'm the founder and CEO of Health Excel. Uh, we're a spin-out from IBM. Uh, and we started the company because we're very good at talking about collaboration, but we're very poor at collaborating um, <laughs> as an industry. Uh, I, I think JP Morgan's a great example, right? Most people are tired and running around, and you know, and it's a, a great week, but it's a crazy week, and then everyone goes back to their their day jobs and has their patients to see and has their have their um, sales quotas to meet and all that type of stuff. And so as much as we want to collaborate, it's, it's really difficult. Um, there's a statistic that I find kind of scary and, and interesting at the same time, which is it takes 17 years on average um, from when we agree something's the right thing to do as medical practice to actually getting it out there. That's when we've stopped arguing about the science or the commercials when we just say it's the right thing to do. 
uh, and that's simply too long. Um, so the idea behind Health Excel is uh, looking at the new wave of innovation we have around digital technologies and figuring out how do we connect all the people that we need to connect. So patients, providers, payers, industry, uh, and investors. Um, so we've built a technology platform that collects information on innovation and allows people to review that the same way as we would with a, with a drug or a device huh. and actually try to uh, you know, calm the wild west that we have at the moment. There's five, six, seven, eight billion going in each year to these companies and very little coming out in terms of financial outcomes or real um, health improvements. Uh, so we work with 40 of some of the largest uh, uh, health systems uh, and, uh, and industry partners and we connect them online but we also connect them in person and really try to understand what are the problems that they want to collaborate on and then what's the evidence and bring in a network of experts we have around the globe. So, so I think what's exciting about this is the, the, power, the consumerization and the, and the potential for patients to really drive change and have healthcare as something that they participate in, mm -hmm. something that's done onto them. Is your platform more of a, is it, is it an incubator too, or is it just we a... Start, yeah, it's interesting. We yeah. started life as an accelerator. Yeah. We thought, well, we want right. to invest in these companies, and, and we realized actually uh, there's a huge challenge. How do you actually make sure that all of the stakeholders are engaged much earlier? And also, how can we be independent? So if somebody comes to us and said, what's the best company or what's the evidence in a particular area? If we're investing in those companies, then we're we're hamstrung. We can't mm. we can't mm -hmm. be objective. The law should be more agnostic in terms exactly, of exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. So we've divested of our investments and okay. just focus on the technology. Okay, William. So yeah, I'm William Payne. Um, my company is MyOwnDoctor.com. We really started because we saw a couple things happening in the marketplace. Um, one was consumerism. You know, most people today use banking as the sort of gold standard, if you will and you can do many things from your mobile devices. You can't really do that in healthcare in the same kind of way. The second thing we saw was the, what I call the 50 minute and five minute rule. 50 minutes of waiting and a five minute office visit, right? I'm sure all of you have experienced that at some point. So there are plenty of visits that could be handled in a way that allows a patient and a provider to connect that doesn't require you to be there. In fact, the AMA said 70% of visits are informational only. So you really don't need to be in the office to see the patient all the time. So we really were looking to create a relationship between the doctor and patient that's different and more dynamic and allows you to be able to have multiple touch points. We know that the most powerful relationship is between the doctor and patient. And we saw disruptors like Teladoc and others who were basically saying, click a button, talk to a stranger. And we found that to be disruptive. And I personally, being a doctor, wanted to preserve that relationship. The second thing is we wanted to empower caregivers. Caregivers, there's about 4.5 million of them that are paid. The rest are unpaid, about 50 million. They do $450 billion of service to healthcare systems and other organizations. Mm -hmm. So if we could empower them with education and knowledge, we could really produce something that's incredible. So I wanted to give them those tools and figure out how to help systems do that. That's great. So I have a question for you there. So are you partnering at all with the payers at all, directly? Well, we'd love to partner with payers. So yeah. if you have a couple in your pocket, we'll take, okay. we'll be happy to speak <laughs> <Okay>. to them. <laughs> but yes, that's one way we can add no, value. That would make sense to me because it is about site neutrality, cost of care, and where the care needs to be provided. 
to get away from the, the 55 yes. <laughs> rule, you know, that would be certainly helpful, but um, no, that's great. Um, so Lisa, I want to talk to you and all of, all of us, all, the whole panel about putting on your crystal ball or, your, uh, or look, uh, look through your crystal ball, what technology, technological disruptions or poise that you see um, are going to change the game in healthcare in the coming years? So and I there's think, all right answers, by the sure. way. Sure. There's no wrong answers. <laughs> so I have a couple of predictions. First, okay. I think, you know, 10, 20 years from now, we look back and say, how did we possibly diagnose patients? How did we possibly mm. prescribe drugs? And we never looked at their molecular makeup. We never knew their genome, and this has such a profound impact on our health. It has a profound impact. It has a much more accurate diagnosis, and it has a profound impact on our, the efficacy of drugs. And of course, we don't know everything about our genome today, but we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago, and we know a lot more, or we will know a lot more in the future. And if you really think about healthcare today, I mean, for the most part, we wait for individuals to become sick, mm -hmm. we observe their symptoms, and then we do our best to try to alleviate those symptoms. It's very reactive. And uh, just as I think about, there was a day in medicine where we didn't know how to do a blood draw, we didn't know how to analyze that. Seems kind of arcane. It's a very core fundamental component to how we deliver healthcare today. We will say the same about genomics in the future. And our, our, we will all be sequenced. I fundamentally believe in our lifetime, virtually everybody will be sequenced. In fact, today, if you would like to be sequenced, Genome Medical has you. <laughs> you can go to genomemedical.com and we, we will take care of you. Uh, and it's anything from a very basic cancer panel all the way up to whole genome sequencing. We can provide all of that. We have medical geneticists and genetic counselors. You go online, schedule an appointment, see somebody next day, evening hours, weekend hours. It's all very uh, simple and convenient. So that, that's my, my first general prediction, long-term prediction, that this will fundamentally change how we mm -hmm. think about healthcare delivery, and it'll move it much more proactive, such that we'll better understand our risks for disease, and we will not have a single standard of care for everybody. We'll suddenly have a standard of care for individuals at high risk of cancer. We'll have a standard mm -hmm. of care for individuals at moderate risk. We'll have a standard of care for individuals at low risk. And that will allow us to better treat patients according to their need. That will allow us to deliver healthcare in a more efficacious manner, but also more cost-effective manner. Because today, we're often over-treating and we're often under-treating, and we don't know which is which. <laughs> we don't know which patients mm -hmm. we're over-treating, which right. ones we're under-treating. So, so that'd be my first prediction. My second prediction is that I think in a much shorter horizon, and I'm gonna put five years out there, I think at the time of diagnosis for cancer, every cancer patient will have both somatic and germline genetic testing. That will allow us to have much more information to better guide in a more precision manner the course of care for that particular individual. Mm -hmm. And I think that will allow us uh, to dramatically reshape the face of treatment for cancer. So essentially we're like software to a certain extent, right? And understanding- Much more customization, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so targeted to the individual, not just the individual, just the individual. Correct. And then to design the right care, uh, care protocol from there. That's correct. That's five years from now? Okay, we got that marked down. Yeah, and 20. I did a <laughs> five, and 20, five and a 20. Huh? You Versus got two a options. five and 55. Or <laughs> <laughs> Lee. So uh, this is a little bit difficult for, you know, I'm not looking at something quite as broad in terms of, you know, the, but I'm thinking that 
we all talk about how much data plays in uh, the role of looking at the future. Big data, how we're accumulating statistics about people. Uh, in my industry, we kind of do the same thing. So when I started, we're talking about organisms in the, in the gut, and there's billions of them. How do you look at what they do? And it comes back to data. So the tools that we've developed, not just in my industry, but across the board, to start picking up nuances in the data and, and looking at how to make that be meaningful, I think is going to transform the way we look at mm -hmm. healthcare. And that, that's going to come back to paying. It's, it should, it's back to you, kind of that whole integration piece. And different, different people will be looking at different parts of that data. But I think there's going to be more and more of that that's going to help, help guide us uh, forward. Okay. Martin. So I think it's interesting this side versus this side. And, uh, we can switch. That was my argument. It was intentional, by the way, just yeah. putting it out there. Girls and boys. The, pro the progress that we have made as an industry in terms of technology and science is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely phenomenal. And I think that will continue to grow. But if you think then in terms of our ability to absorb and use it uh, and the care delivery, I think there's a huge mismatch. I think there's a huge opportunity. So, I mean, my focus is really on digital. Um, it, I think it's like 1997 again, in that we're probably 20 years behind other industries. In our, and it's really exciting to see telemedicine now starting to become the start of hopefully a mainstream adoption. So I think the diffusion of stuff into the real world is, is really exciting. I think that the challenge that we have is all of these problems are too big to be solved by one organization. Right. And I think the catalyst will be how do we empower people to own their own health and to act as the orchestrator of, the, of, the, of all the different components that need to come together. So but who organizes that though? I, I, think, I think it has to come back to the individual, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think people organize their own finances, they organize their own transportation, they, they, you know, why don't they? own their own health and why don't they organize their own health and why is health done onto people mm -hmm. rather than something that they, 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 they manage and control. Now you need expertise, you need expertise in terms of finance, you need expertise in terms of education. Right. Uh, you, you know, I'm going to get on a plane tonight, I need expertise who's going to fly that fly plane, plane, right? Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, you, are, um, you decide where you go and you make those decisions and we don't have that yet as an industry. Okay. So that's what I hope. William. Yeah, I think that um, the thing that we're going to see is we spend about 88% of the dollars on delivery of care today and about 4% on changing behaviors. Right. And I think that what we're going to find in the future is we're going to and that 88% of dollars only affects about 10 to 20% of the outcome. And that 4% drives about 30 to 40% of the outcome. And we're going to see those numbers sort of equilibrate to something that's more e at equilibrium, if you will. Um, people's behaviors, obesity is the new smoking, right? And people talk about it, but nobody's really figured out how we're going to tackle it or how we're going to address it. And I think over the next five years, I'll use your number, um, we're going to see obesity become a bigger issue. And people are really looking for how do I create customized, tailored programs for all the subset of peoples. One of the theories is every diet is different, and every diet should be applied to a person, perhaps on their genetics, perhaps yeah. on their gut profile, perhaps on something else. Mm -hmm. And so how do I deliver that content and knowledge to them in a way that's meaningful? One of the things that we do with our platform, we have a, the ability to create a curriculum and push that curriculum to people based on either dates or times or whatever intervals you want. So health education for populations is going to become an increasingly important activity. 
The second thing I would say is that you're going to see more convergence. Um, and that convergence is going to come from players that you may expect or may not expect, you know, whether it's Apple or Amazon or others. Um, anyone who has a group of people that are loyal to them, Peloton bike riders, for example, could suddenly be in the healthcare business. So if you're a healthcare system, you need to be aware and pay attention because it's going to come from some place that you don't expect. So you could actually be an organizer to a certain extent, right? Because you're could. organizing um, education, Absolutely. bringing ideas together, creating directionality for patients' information. Absolutely. So if you had patients and you could organize them, so let me just give you an example. So they came out with a new high blood pressure criteria, right? You got thousands of doctors who now get, need to get retrained. You got patients who need to know how to use the blood pressure cuffs, take their blood pressures four times a day. Who's going to train all those people? You can't train them one to one. I don't have time to do that as a doctor. So you got to do it at scale. And so as soon as people realize that they got to do it at scale, then they got to get a delivery mechanism. And that's where we can help. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. So one of the things that we talk about a lot in, in um, our world is talk about value-based payment, value-based pricing. And I think that this conversation is going towards that. So how it's important for newcomers to know how to adapt to the, the change in payment models, right? Across the payment, it could be commercial, government, doesn't make a difference, right? And we know three out of four providers um, say their patients are interesting, interested in value-based pricing, this idea of like, what did I pay? What did I get for what I pay? You go to a restaurant, you know what you pay, you know what you get. Same thing in healthcare, which we, there's a, a opacity to that. So how are you addressing the, the trend towards, or addressing the trend towards value-based pricing models and the implications for your organizations? So we do that in a couple of ways. I mean, one, uh, patients can self-refer, and so there it's a, uh, it's a question of mm -hmm. a benefits investigation, mm -hmm. and is this a reimbursable event? Is it covered by insurance or not? And just because the industry is changing so quickly, and to the earlier point of 17 years, <laughs> you know, it, it really does take that long, because you've got to establish clinical utility for testing, you then get to medical management guidelines in place, and then you get to reimbursement coverage, and actually the last hurdle is the physician training knowledge adoption. Um, and that just takes a lot of time. And so I think one of the opportunities we see, particularly with this theme around consumer empowerment and taking more control over one's uh, you know, proactive health, uh, payers do not cover today proactive health in general as a broad category mm. for the most part. There's a few situations, you know, six-month dental appointments and the like. But for the most part, it, there, there's, there's limited coverage around proactive health. Um, and that's true in the case of, of genetics and genomics. And so we see you know, one of the core is how do we set and establish pricing such that it has a value for the patient. And they see that value, even as a consumer, a healthy, well person who wants to use information to better guide their ongoing care. So if you're you know, in your 20s and you're thinking have kids for the first time, well then it's about how do I ensure a healthy child and I should have carrier testing before I actually conceive and maybe there's NIPT te testing in that process and uh, some of that's reimbursed, some of that's not. Uh, similarly, if you're now in your 40s or 50s and you wanna live the healthiest, longest life one can, you know, maybe you're willing to invest a couple hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars in knowledge that could help you better understand what your future may look like and mm -hmm. that are actionable medically such that one could take preventive measures to actually change what that course might look like for you. 
In the case of cancer, it's 100% treatable disease as long as you find it early. So if you know you're at high risk, you may now qualify, according to insurance coverage, for an annual MRI leads to earlier detection. Mm -hmm. uh, there are sort of tangible benefits. So we think of it as how do we anchor around the consumer and the value proposition for the consumer. Mm -hmm. Second area we're really driving that is with employer organizations. Mm -hmm. So uh, whether it be a self-funded employer uh, for you know, uh, kind of self-insured, uh, or whether it be more in employee benefits. Um, particularly in the Bay Area, there's a lot of competition around talent, and I think that's true nationwide. And so offering more of a proactive health program and or just bringing the standard of care and genetics to your employer base, uh, we're seeing increasing degree of interest. And there I would think about it as, again, mm -hmm. value-based pricing and right. that it can actually lead to health economics and improved right. cost savings. So, so the consumer takes control over his or her well, uh, health rather, just as they would for their financing for that matter. It's really to plan out what their health could be. Correct. Yeah. And go one step further and say, even if my insurance doesn't cover it, I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to pay. And I'm willing to pay out of pocket because this is my life. Yep. And I want to be here and healthy and well. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that might help me to do that, particularly if it's a couple hundred bucks, right. I might sign up. Yep, makes sense. Lee. So for us, we're a product company and our products will be commercialized before a lot of the major changes take place. What we've done to look at it, uh, kind of where that, again, where that intersection of value comes in is to scout, like most people do, what's out there today? How do we compare and how does our efficacy and how do the patients do over the long term compared to what they, they're being given today? What is the cost of what they're being given today? How do we compare to that? And how do we save money on that patient over time? So I'll give you an example. That we've done clinical trials that show a first use of our product, and if there's a recurrence of the disease, a second use of our product to see if there's a second secondary benefit. And then we can look at how many people are treated adequately the first time how many get an additional benefit, and then look at a value price basis to say, you know, if we priced it in a reasonable way that gives us the margins we need, it gives the physicians what they need in the healthcare, saves costs in the healthcare system, we could possibly price it so that if you weren't satisfied, you didn't get cured the first time around, you'd be eligible for a free second time around. And we all, everybody kind of wins that way because it, it works out so that we're taking enormous amounts of money out of the healthcare system every time we prevent that next disease. So we believe that there is a model there that we can go to and we are exploring that. Again, some of that comes back to how, how the other side, the payers might look at that um, and how, how forward acting they might think. So right now we haven't tested those boundaries. We've mm -hmm. talked to payers, but we don't know how likely they would be to sign up for something like that or even how you would deliver that to somebody. But I think that's what I'm hearing in the, yeah. in the industry is where people are starting to think of value-based pricing being. Well, I, I mean, I think that you would almost look at what's, what's the current state, what the cost of the current state is, and you can demonstrate outcomes that are coming off of that, and you can drive a lot of better, better clinical outcomes lower price, keeping people out of high cost locations, sites, you can probably do a good job of demonstrating we're, that. We're still in a model where if they get sick, we fix that versus in the long term, what yeah. we're looking at is uh, creating uh, a microbiome health index, for example. Oh, interesting. Looking yeah. at, you know, we're, we've started the statistical process to start looking at, is there a way to distill 
the health of your microbiome down to one index, one number that says, yeah, this person's headed this way for disease, or no, they're healthy. So the idea is that as we gather this data and we start going forward in time, to, to have an index uh, that says, you know, like blood pressure, for example. People treat blood pressure a day, not because the blood pressure itself is causing a physical problem, it's because they're, pre they're preventing the, the occurrence of heart disease or strokes or whatever in the future. So that is a value-based thing today. We're looking at the same thing on the microbiome space. If we can get to that point where you'd look at somebody's microbiome or your, you know, like your genetics, right? Can we, can we insert today something or recognize that that person is heading down the wrong path, fix their microbiome and prevent that, whatever that is in the future. So um, that's how I see my industry playing out. Mm -hmm. But I, I think uh, all those things, that, that future looking, the question to me really gets back to the money and how it, where the money goes to drive that because it's you know without money attached <laughs> I'm cynical but no, hopefully things get done without money attached that's what this conference is about yeah. think about it. <laughs> just saying Martin so I, I moved from Ireland to Boston uh, and, and it was no difference no difference am I right colder just a little chillier a little bit chillier in the but, uh, summer, it was chilly in Ireland. Though. That's right. That's right. Um, I won't pretend to even understand. Uh, you know, I've been coming back and forth to the U.S. for years, and, and then having to get my own health insurance and try to figure all that out. So, yeah. So like, it's so opaque. But I think on the positive side, um, a lot of our farmer uh, customers are very excited about how can we use our mobile phones and mm -hmm. real-world evidence to actually show what impact you can have in the real world, not in a trial, and use that as evidence for you know, mm -hmm. their, their, their submissions. Uh, and William mentioned earlier about obesity. I mean, one of the companies that I really like is, is Omada, um, who are really trying to, they, I think they've got a really nice model of, they have some technology, they have a, a support group, they have a program, and there's a reimbursement to try and stop uh, pre-diabetes and diabetes. Um, uh, and get paid based on that uh, preventative outcome. So I mean, those types of models are really complicated because you got to get the technology working, you, mm -hmm. you know, that the person at home can use it. You got to get the, the coaches around them, the support network around them. But you can use technology to do that and then to drive actual outcomes on it. Right. You know, and prevent prevent this epidemic. I think is pretty exciting. As long as it's measurable, that's the whole thing. Exactly. And there's some veracity in the. Yeah. And now they're getting to the stage where they're running the trials and yeah. they have the data and they have right. the clinical data and the economic data. And then it's be, you know, I think the companies that can do that and apply, apply the same rigor that pharma medical devices have done. Will, will stand to be very big winners in mm -hmm. terms of becoming the, the kind of leaders of the pack. That's great. William, yeah, what do you I think? Th I th well, now, you're right in the middle of that space when you think about it, your model. Yeah, I think that the uh, area to create value today is really around right site utilization. So, you know, patients end up in the wrong site and then it's really costly. So it's how do you get the patient to the right point of care at the right time? And sometimes the right site is just a text message or a chat. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the right side is an office visit, sometimes the right side is an urgent care, and sometimes it is the ER. In Indiana and Illinois recently, Anthem uh, just came out with a new program that basically says if you go to the ER and you get seen and it's not an emergency, they're only going to pay $75 to the hospital. Yeah. Right? So they're basically saying, look, if you're in the wrong site, you at the hospital have a choice. You can either go after the patient, which they don't want to do, no. or you're going to eat it. 
So it becomes about how do I Which get they the, don't want to do either. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. They don't want to do either. Right. But how do I get the patient to the right side at the right time? Right. And part of that way that you can do that is by leveraging technology. And so if you can develop that relationship, have the patient communicate with you early, use their caregiver as a proxy for them, then sometimes you can create interventions that reduce the cost of care. And so it's about really understanding how do I um, take a population of people, get them to the right place. Sometimes they can self-select. So down the street at Stanford, they did a project where they let the patient pick. You could do an email visit, you could do an in-person visit, you could do, and people just sort of stratified out based on what they saw as their acuity. So I think there's a lot of different ways and models to create value once you're in a value-based model. Um, and it, I think it's an exciting time. Can we show the, um, thank you, Wayne. Can we show the slide that had, what's the one, on the, 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 um, the CBS Aetna slide? So let's go to this, this slide here. So we had um, the two previous two panels uh, discussions. We talked about innovative mergers with you know new entrants from an investor standpoint, right? Like who's coming in that is different that had not been there before. I mean the CVS and Aetna is kind of like a, a disruptive to a certain extent. So from your perspective, how disruptive do you expect these types of mergers, such as the CVS Aetna? Uh, be on the healthcare industry that over the next three years that we'll see when I was making three, not five or 20, <laughs> but really because 20 is like a whole lifetime. It's like crazy. <laughs> um, to really understand the kind of where you fit in, right, and what you're trying to do, but also how really disruptive it's going to be. Sometimes it's enough of a disruption that there's creates opportunity or just does not create opportunity. So what do you think? So one thing that stands out for me when I look at this slide yeah. quickly is it's really about consumer driven, right? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Amazon, Google, Apple, even CVS, the CVS Aetna, that's all about putting patient care in the spokes as opposed to the mm -hmm. hub. That's about getting to the patient at a retail center. And I read some stat where you know, the vast majority of the population is within 1.5 miles of, you know, basically a pharmacy versus, you know, access to your whole care network and in particular cases where you have to go see specialists. And so I think that hits one of the trends we've been talking to, which mm -hmm. is how do you help enable more of this consumer empowerment, patient empowerment, um, and how does that change the landscape? Because really, who has relationships with the, the consumer in innovative and interesting and new ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the areas of genomics we haven't talked a lot about is pharmacogenomics, which is the concept of when you're being prescribed a drug, is there anything in your genome that's going to interact in such a way that it's maybe contraindicated or mm -hmm. has no efficacy or perhaps you know, would be demonstrated to have higher efficacy? number of uh, drugs, actually about 130 or so now that are precision medicine drugs where there's actually a, a biomarker that would indicate and actually be required in order to uh, be on the drug. And so you can imagine, you know, in the world of maybe three years from now, maybe it's a little aggressive, uh, but, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've got your genome, it's on your mobile, and you go to your CVS, and you look and say, oh, I have, you know, long QT, and this drug's contraindicated, and now it's not going to be prescribed, right? Mm -hmm. What's the timeline for that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Amazon has uh, expressed, uh, you know, a pretty significant presence in starting to play and operate in this space, and obviously mm -hmm. the others on that slide as well. So, 
you know, for me, I think the takeaway is just, again, they're going to be new entrants. It's going to be innovation in healthcare is here and frankly necessary right. given our aging population, given the trend lines of increased spend, like it's just not sustainable. So it, we have to have mass innovation. In fact, we're gonna have a shortage of primary care doctors and OB-GYNs and internists. And you know, I mean, there's all these trend lines that just show massive innovation will be required to continue mm -hmm. to deliver healthcare. So okay. that would be my takeaway. Thank you. So I, I'm actually a little bit afraid of the consumer, as a, again, as a company, uh, the consumer interest, and in my industry, for example, um, the microbiome, when, we, when I first got started in 2011, we put together a whole website to try to, because we thought we'd have to teach people about this in order to even have somebody talk to us. And by the time we got it put together, it, the whole industry had run by because there was so much hype and it got into the consumer networks and the consumer, I'm sure all of you have read, you know, the microbiome this, the microbiome that, um, and there was, kind of no way to answer that. There was no data, no clinical evidence, um, but what happened as a result of that is, you know, there was such an enormous push, even on the FDA, to adopt something way before there was any data. Mm. We were in the process of putting our IND in and starting to, you know, to go to clinical data, and the FDA said, wait a minute, you know, we don't want to stop treating people or have physicians stop treating people, so we're just not going to enforce this. Except on you. So, so what we, we ended up having to run clinical studies. We have a competitor in the marketplace who decided they didn't care about the FDA, that they just decided to sell product uh, across the country. Um, the FDA didn't, hasn't done anything about that because they, um, they don't want to stand between the doctor and their patient. And so what, what's happened as a result is this: the other company has said, well, gee, we, we have enough stock that we can supply a doctor who's untrained in this, who doesn't, you know, the patient they don't even, doesn't even have to qualify for what the disease would be, and we can treat them uh, within two hours of this. So as a result, <coughs> what's happened then is there's a conflict between providing that evidence-based medicine through clinical trials. Uh, patients don't want to be in clinical trial. Hey, I can go to my local doc, and, I, and they can buy it off the internet, so I can, I can have it done. So what we're seeing now is the aftermath of that because the people that were treated inappropriately who weren't successful, who are sick, are now flooding into our clinical sites, but we can't treat them. They can't be part of our thing because they've had a prior treatment that knocks them out of our, out of our patient population. So it's created an enormous conundrum, the whole you know, patient-driven um, Piece and, and what we're obligated to do from a regulatory standpoint because if we don't get our product through the FDA, we can't get it reimbursed. It's not widely available to everybody. So there's that push-pull. So actually, I, I don't know if that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I think it's yet to play out, but I right. think it, you know, it's, it's had a negative impact in, in our industry to try to do actual data gathering and a controlled I was just going to interject on that really quickly. I think that's such an important point. There is this sort of tension and balance between how do you drive to advancement in new technology, new science, but it really does have to be evidence-based and high efficacy of care. And so, you know, that that's a very real tension point. Well, part of innovation, too. You also have destruction. destruction. You have 
failed models and until something emerges out of that. So I'm not disagreeing. That's, that's, uh, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, though. Martin. Well, it's great for my business. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bogeyman that scares all of my pharma and, and <laughs> health systems. And they, you know, we just did a report on virtual pharmacies, and, and it was the most picked up analysis we've done. You know, so, mm -hmm. and I say that in terms of it's good to shake up the system. Um, what I think is very interesting about it are you know the net promoter scores that those brands have. You know, you look very at how yeah. Apple or high. Amazon are, are, are viewed versus like how an insurer is viewed. Yes, yeah. You know? So, you know, their brand value is, is phenomenal. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, casualties and, and problems along the way, I'm yeah. sure. But it's, it, I think it's good from the point of view of, of people not resting on their laurels and, and people starting to mm -hmm. think, you know, how do I actually think about serving a, a consumer or a patient? And, Thinking about them, not just here. Here's what I want. But understand what the mean, how, to, how it flows through as well, right? To, to Lee's point, because it, there's a lot of information that's not correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or people just don't understand. They understand it. Wait. Yeah, I think big for big sake is not necessarily the answer. Mm -hmm. It's really about what services that they spin out. And I'll give you an example. So Amazon has a app. I mean, Apple has a Apple Research Kit. Um, the, some investigators have used to try to get patients you know, for clinical trials. So your average clinical trial, you're struggling to get patients enrolled, it's difficult. This Apple research kit, they got 14,000 people to sign up within about five hours. Yeah. So the, the wow. power of their platform is that they can influence the consumer to react and act in different ways than we can in other methods. So it's really about how do I sort of get myself as a part of their system <clears throat> so I can use that too. And the Apple Research Kit is an example of something that you know, is commercially available. You can use it if you're a researcher. So that's one example. Second is the Echo Dot, Amazon's product, right? So yeah. they did a trial in, in, I think it was in Ireland, um, where they were using the Echo Dot to assist caregivers. And basically, they're using it for medication reminders and different sorts of activities. So it's really about what services do you create around these technologies that really brings the added value. So I'm not necessarily afraid of them. I just think it's important to understand that you know, big for big sake isn't necessarily the answer, mm -hmm. but it's about how do you sort of create the innovation within the context of that environment. That's uh, that's very helpful. Um, we go to the next slide. So uh, before we do that, though, well, before I talk about the next question, but um, so you ever have it, we had this before with uh, Karen DeSable earlier in terms of emergency preparedness. But you know what the number one our forensic practice did a study. The number one purchase from Walmart before a hurricane. What would you get? Batteries. Pop tarts. So you know what? We're all going to die. We're going to have Pop-Tarts. People who don't eat ice cream during the regular time of year and don't have eggs. Snowstorm in the Northeast, you can't get eggs or ice cream at all right. in any store. Right. They're over. cleaned out. It's like people are buying gallons of it. So what happens in terms of behavioral change? That would be a good thing in terms of innovation. Yeah. Like when, it's, when we have a storm, put the batteries out first and then worry about the Pop-Tarts later. But Pop-Tarts, I mean, what's the life of a Pop-Tart? 50 years? 60 years? No. <laughs> you know. Anyway, let's talk to the next slide here. Um, we did a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and providers told us that they see major tech players, right? We had a conversation earlier today about this. I uh, like Amazon, Apple, Google, having a huge impact on the industry. So again, there's no wrong answers. Everyone gets a medal. <laughs> um, so what's your take on big, tech, big tech's influence in healthcare, and who do you think, you know, 
are, they, are, are these the only movers or shakers in healthcare techno in technology coming in, and who would be most the greatest influencers would you see? And I know it's multiple question um, process, but would you consider working with a major player? I mean, you may or you already kind of are to a spinoff. Yeah, so we, we work with, um, well, we spin out of IBM. Yeah. We work with Google DeepMind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of would have been around the Watson stuff for a while. I, I don't think it's either or. I think what's interesting is both parties need each other. Yeah. You know, so whether it's the health system or the technology, neither of them can solve it on their own. And I think the ones that can figure out how to partner, I mean, the stuff that, um, Novartis and Google were doing about the lenses. You know, there's a couple of those, and some of those will fail for sure. But I think even the 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 knowledge that they develop in building those partnerships is going to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. William, how about you? Yeah, I, I think that, take your pick. Which one do you want to win? <laughs> um, so I think they're going to be dis disruptive, um, and I think it's good that they're going to be disruptive. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a, an example. I mean, food scarcity, for example, is an issue, right? Yeah. And just sort of segueing about the Pop-Tarts. Yeah. So one hospital looked at food scarcity, and uh, I think it was around 12% or 15% of their patients who were having readmissions were getting readmissions for food scarcity, right? Right, yeah. So guess what? If I was a hospital CEO, I would send food yep. via Amazon, via Peapod, Whole Foods, right. to that person's house to mm -hmm. keep them out of my ER running up costs. So I think... The thing that they do really well is they understand their customers better than we understand our customers in healthcare. Um, they have a much better sense of who that person is, what motivates them, how to drive them to do certain behaviors. And I think if we can partner with them, we can create incredible change. Lee, how about you? Who's your pick? If you were to pick them. <laughs> pick what? The, what do you think one? in terms of like the tech, like innovators, like your work with, you have your own company obviously, but you're gonna be partnering with other Potential tech provider, potentially. I mean, how do you see that coming together for your, for your company? And how would you, what do you want to see out of them that, you, that could force multiply what you do? That's a really interesting question because, um, you know, I, I like your com comments about, you know, reaching out to the consumer and knowing that customer. Uh, one of the things that we've done that's different than a lot of drug companies do is, we didn't outsource our clinical studies, so we hired people in our company to actually work with the physicians to do the clinical trials. But what I realized is that my, my life as a medical device person, I was standing in surgeries watching stuff happen, so I knew how my stuff you know, influenced that particular patient. In the drug world, you don't really do that. You give your, your pills to somebody else who gives them to somebody else, and you're lucky if you hear anything other than an aggregate set of information. Mm. So I think, it, I, I don't know how I would partner. I mean, I'm thinking about this again. I, I believe there's probably a way. Yeah. Um, but I, I think if we miss that, you know, if everything is done where there's no personal connection, and to really understand that, because the disease I'm treating is much more complicated than people think. People think it's really cut and dried. It's not. Mm -hmm. And so we've been really successful in our clinical program because we actually have somebody at, you know, interfacing with the site. So we hear right then, is it working, not working? Is that person having a problem, yes or no? And so that feeds back into what we do. So maybe there's a way to do something like that. I don't know exactly, but I don't have a good answer. So I would say we really bridge between technology and healthcare. We kind of, I think of it as, you know, a couple of 
pillars on our uh, business model, which is that we're using technology to drive innovation in service delivery, mm-hmm. and we're a medical practice. So we really operate in both of those industries, and that in and of itself can be a challenge because you have you know physicians and bioinformaticians and yep. scientists working with engineers and product uh, designers and whatnot, and so we all speak different languages, and being able to get that whole group uh, working together in an, you know, in a in a company is actually quite an interesting study because people approach problems in different ways. Um, what I would say though is, uh, so Genome Medical is backed by Canaan Partners, GE Ventures, Illumina Ventures, Kaiser Permanente Ventures, and Health Invest Equity Partners, and we are built on more of a business-to-business. Uh, sort of strategy, uh, a collaborative strategy. So we want to work with hospitals, we want to work with health systems, we want to bring genomics into the community setting, because right now it largely sits at leading academic research centers. And so we work with physician groups, we work with the community uh, hospitals, um, and yet we license and work with you know major tech players in order to uh, mm-hmm. deliver innovation in healthcare delivery. And so I think we kind of bridge between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. So I see sort of uh, the promise and the benefit if you can do that effectively. And they are, they are different worlds and mm-hmm. the way they, uh, they approach it is different. So I think we've seen a number of examples where you know, tech innovators jump into healthcare and I actually came out of tech. It's a bit of a wake-up call. I mean, this is a legal and regulatory environment that is quite different than consumer tech. <laughs> and so being knowledgeable and informed, uh, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. not as trivial as one might, uh, no. might think. Nothing like jumping both feet in, into a ball of fire. Yes. yes. Let's take some questions from the audience. Good guy asked this question, which is on health consumerism and personalized medicine. And Lisa, you alluded to that with comparing diagnostics and how Pharma is actually building these mechanisms to know if the drugs are right for the right people. Is there anybody in the panel that feels that there's going to be a contradiction when you have health consumerism and you have a company like Amazon that bases decisions on what that patient has been purchasing or that person mm. purchasing mm. Uh, in health? It's not the same. That's why when you doctor, you go to the doctor and they tell you this is what you need. Uh, it's not going to be based on the decision of what drug you took or whatever health services you consumed in the past. So there is a bit of a those trends can work together, but they can also really work mm-hmm. against each other. So I'd love to hear your thoughts from the panel on that. Well, I'd object. I mean, I think there's also sort of the HIPAA privacy security components to that as well, right? Because, it, you know, I'm sure we've all had in the early days of Facebook where, you know, you get the match around something where you're like, I'm not a 50 year old male, and why would you be putting that product in front of me? Uh, you know, where it didn't quite work as one was designed. So, so they're anyway. messing with your head, I think. <laughs> you probably guess which product I'd be referencing there. But, uh, but the point is, is like, that ends up becoming even more uh, concerning if you're now in, in more personalized information. So I would say they're definitely. Definitely uh, landmines and, and mm-hmm. real, real concerns. Um, you know, particularly as you, you know, you're working with Echo as an example. I think that's a very cool technology. And then you think about, okay, well, wait, we've now got HIPAA privacy yeah. information, and how do we make sure there's like real walls, <laughs> firewalls there uh, around that information? It's tricky, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but in some ways, the cat's already out of the bag. Yeah. You know, people can go onto Google and, you know, get this massive information that you can't really understand, especially if you think about genomics, right? I mean, even people who really understand it, it's a very complicated thing because it's not just that, but it's the behavioral change and stuff. So 
I think I think you're spot on. The, like, how much are we going to outsource that thinking to another party? And how you know, there's been a couple of cases in the UK with Google and DeepMind about the privacy of data that's yeah. been all over the FT. Well, yeah, I mean, there's clearly been concerns I've been reading about that people are very, you know, think about in the 1970s when you had, you talk about the you know, wiretapping in this country is major, you know, people are, the federal government can you wiretap and permission to get wiretap. But you can say, well, I can buy that Alexa device for $39 and they know exactly what I'm doing in my house. And so yeah. there's this privacy piece, not just the healthcare privacy piece, just in general your life, you know. Um, and so, you know, maybe when you start, telling Alexa to play certain types of music, then all of a sudden you start seeing ads of certain type of music that they want you to sell, and, yeah. or to buy, rather. So, any other questions? I think kind of getting back to your question, it is a really interesting question, yeah. because I could see from an industry standpoint, partnering with somebody to, to see their purchases, right? Did they go to the pharmacy? Did they go to the doctor? Did they, or how many antibiotics? was that household sold. So if you're targeting, for example, an infectious disease, mm -hmm. um, you could possibly scout for patients there um, that would, you'd be looking at that, especially as, you know, antibiotic resistance grows and you're, you're trying to cut that down. I mean, I can see, again, but I, I think what I'm, well, I don't see a, a financial incentive, and this gets back to my basic belief that Money drives behaviors. Uh, I don't. I don't know how that would tie in. And maybe there's a, a reward program for the consumer if you, you know, put your data. And I don't know. And then that gets pay, paid back to the industry. I, I'm not exactly sure, but it, it is an interesting question. What it layers into FDA, and I mean, it's a complex. I mean, I and probably want to move on, but one brief example. So Goodstart was uh, a company that, and still does, I believe, but sells carrier testing through Amazon. Mm. And in carrier screening, for the vast majority of individuals today, they get carrier testing when they're pregnant. And that's vastly mm. now limiting in terms of your choices of what you might do. Uh, and so you really want to pull that forward. And through traditional medicine, this just hasn't really been pulled forward in certain segments it has. And so there, the concept would be the catalyst of, well, if you make it more readily available to individuals, do they have it? Do they have it earlier? Maybe a positive. It is, however, diagnostic. And so you now need, uh, you know, in the case of care, it's a little easier than, uh, than, than many forms of, of diagnostic testing. But regardless, you need medical advice around that, so. Yeah. Anita? The pace of change is accelerating quite considerably, right? And so if you look at electricity, it took society 50 years before 60% of households in the United States got electricity. It took smartphones five years before 60% of the United States got uh, smartphones, right? So how ready is the consumer to give on more and more of these changes that we're talking about? Is there a point where there's just so much fatigue and inability to process that change in yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a case in point. <laughs> I, I would say that I would say that what you're seeing is things are becoming more ubiquitous ways of life, and so if you look at millennials, you know they're digital natives, and so how they view the world is completely different than say how I view the world, and so that change is going to get accelerated by them, and they're going to demand that there are certain capabilities available. So I, I think the change is gonna be accelerated by the, the consumer push, and the, the responsibility of healthcare institutions is to marry the evidence to the push, 
so that you come up with something that actually improves outcomes at a reasonable price. I mean, that's really the challenge. And so I think the, the thing that has to happen in the future is, is the companies like Amazon or Apple or others who have that ability is to really figure out how do I harness these people to create something that's really valuable and, and an out, a good outcome. I think that gets back to privacy too because I, I know my, my kids, which they're in their 20s, feel completely differently about privacy than someone That's right. Sure. I, I don't think, personally, I don't think there is such a thing as privacy, so I think a lot of the HIPAA stuff is just going to go by the wayside because people wa willingly volunteer, volunteer huge amounts of yeah. health information to strangers all the time. Yeah. So I... About 80% of consumers are willing to share information with either healthcare providers or others to help others. So people are willing to share information, so it's about getting those permissions. I think the companies that will be successful will be the ones that hide that complexity. Yeah. You know, so if you think about Amazon or mm -hmm. Apple, they hide all that stuff, or Google, they hide, you know, so it's just a, from your, you know, from a user point of view, all that stuff is just happening in the background, you know, so I think they're going to be the companies that simplify that stuff. But I, th I think, kind of getting back to your point, I think a lot depends on how people are tied into their healthcare in general. So someone who's trying to, has a job that's trying to work to put food on the table okay. is probably not as concerned about their genomic testing as they would be just what they're going to eat tomorrow. So I, right. I'm a little concerned that we're going to, we're going to, the tech stuff is going forward, but I don't want to leave the people behind that yeah. you know are. And I, I don't know how you think about that, but uh, maybe Amazon and, and Apple are, are such a big brand that's ubiquitous and that that's already recognized as a... Mm -hmm. Uh, a, a voice of authority, and it could be really useful in that case. Uh, yeah, we have one more question. It seems like the elephant in the room is the health insurance. Getting them on board. I mean, they're, they're, a lot of what you're talking about are uh, products and services that if they're going to be paid for, would require the health insurers to take a more comprehensive view of cost of care. Uh, I mean, for years, preventive health hasn't been really paid for by the health insurers, and what you're talking about is sort of in that same vein. How do you see that changing? I can use a specific example. So uh, in cancer genetics, you know, I don't know, five years ago, <clears throat> 10 years ago certainly, but probably five, largely five years ago, we tested for two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Today, that's largely what's reimbursed by many insurance companies, and yet the evidence has suggested that that's less than a third of the cause of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. So there's now NCCN guidelines with around 11 genes, but there are actually 80 gene cancer panels available in the market. And so there is sort of this progress and progression, we've talked a little bit about it, where you know, it starts with that establishing, you know, it's really gotta be evidence-based, and so, uh, I think one of the opportunities for change agents and innovators is how do you demonstrate, maybe under that patient pay model, some of the efficacy, the utility, and then that helps amass the data and the health you know, economics to ultimately drive it forward in care. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in the future we are you know, mm -hmm. getting to what's more of the population health screening because costs are coming down. And mm -hmm. at some level, if you think about it in cancer, if you can avoid treating metastatic cancer, 
that's a huge cost savings. You can test a lot of people at 100 bucks or 200 bucks or $250 to avoid a metastatic cancer patient. And so at some point, the health economics just makes sense and it, it, it occurs, but it takes a long time because you need the health outcomes, you need the, you need the data, and you need it at scale in order to demonstrate that. So I think it's about finding the utility and the use cases, and in some cases, patient willingness to pay to help advance and drive it into standard of care. And I'm thinking, in a way, you know, I, I was thinking about Fitbits. Um, recently had a, a relative who went through a, uh, AFib issue. And so the question is, how do you measure that person's heartbeat and see if they can go, you know, so they can monitor themselves. So the person got a Fitbit, right? So they can, they can look at it. So they didn't sell the diagnostic. They didn't get paid for the diagnostic. That person bought an item of technology. So I'm thinking that's a lot of the diagnostic tests that we're expecting somebody to pay for, we'll pay for for ourselves just with a unit of something else. So it could, I could imagine Amazon or I, yeah, Apple company selling diagnostics in a different way. Hey, you know, I'll get all these people to buy my technology item, which will be popular, right? And for that, you know, I'm doing the diagnostic for free. So mm-hmm. you, I, I can imagine a whole bunch of different models that some of that stuff will get paid for, but in a different way, and so people aren't thinking they're paying for it. I think the insurers are motivated. A lot of them have bought telemedicine companies, for example. Um, A lot of them are doing trials for their value-based patients, Medicare Advantage and others, to try to lower the cost of care. I think the thing for them is it's a one-year cycle, right? So I'm with them for one year and I'm gone the next. So maybe the the change comes in the way we sell insurance or buy insurance as consumers. And if we bought a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or some other variation thereof, you know, there'd be more reason for them to invest in our long-term overall health. The second thing is, is really the aggregation of data and how they use it. I mean, they have a lot of data, right? I mean, if, if they want to filter that data and use it, they can figure out a lot of stuff. The problem is, once they figure it out, is how do you implement it? So some of them have bought health systems and have bought doctor's practices and medical groups, so now they can actually drive care. Because mm-hmm. the problem before was they didn't have a good way to do that, and so they're working on it. So I think they are interested and motivated. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much, Lisa, Lee, Martin, William. A very candid conversation. I appreciate it greatly. I hope everyone found it as interesting as I have. It's been very fascinating for us. Um, we're all coming up on a break now. We have lunch ready for everyone. And uh, we'll start the last panel, led by uh, my colleague, Dr. David Friend, at noon. So please thank our panelists for joining us today and, and help yourself to lunch. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. In the next episode of BDO Healthcare Rx, we'll hear about how mergers and innovative technologies are changing and improving the healthcare industry. So, on the patient side, you have you know really high acuity um, needs, very seriously ill patients um, needing some sort of specialty, and then you have others that are consumers that can really have consumer-directed care, can access products and services that are much less critical to their long-term health. So we, we look at that as a, as a fundamental divide. We think Amazon makes the point there. We also think that Amazon really reinforces the point of alternative site, post-acute, outside the hospital setting for care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. 
You can also subscribe to the BDO Nose Healthcare blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash healthcare.